0: listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. I so love that. <laughs> Look, I know we've shown it a few times and it's a little self-indulgent for me to ask the team to put it on there again. But I do. I love it. I just love it. And it really fits with our opening passage of Scripture today, uh, believe it or not. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11. And it says this, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of the roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The wolf shall lie with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the, um, and the faultling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put in its hand the addler's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples, and the nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Amen. What beautiful imagery that... When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon God's anointed one, he will come and bring a level of peace beyond what we can imagine. We're not just talking about you know, the peace between one nation and another or one group of people and another, but actually bringing peace even to all of creation. Like the animal kingdom will experience peace. All of these uh, animals that otherwise might have been enemies with one another, will find ways to kind of live together peaceably. And they do all sorts of things. I mean, there is some pretty funny stuff in that text. That bit that that said, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. I'm thinking, (laughs) if you're going to meet the anointed one, you might need to have some breath mints with you. (laughs) It's pretty bad breath that kills the wicked there. (laughs) But uh, forgive me. But I, I really do. And then the, that idea, I mean, it's one thing to say the wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. It sounds very poetic. But let me tell you, if you're a lamb, you're, you would not want a wolf laying down next to you, right? The, the fact that the lion is just eating straw like an ox, like that, that's pretty comforting to pretty much every other animal, right? Because they would, fear, they would fear the lion. But then it got a little creepy almost when it said... The infant shall place his hand over the hole of the asp. Like, so you all know that I I grew up as an Appalachian American, yeah, and that uh, I went to an Appalachian kind of Pentecostal church. And I I don't know if you know this, but uh, Appalachian Pentecostals are are known for a particular form of worship uh, called snake handling. Have you heard of this? Yeah, There's a new feature film out called Them That Follow. It's very interesting. I would, I would recommend it. So, I mean, it does say in the Gospel of Mark, they will speak in tongues. They will cast out demons. They will take up serpents. So we have some boxes in the back we're going to bring forward. <laughs> you were quick to laugh, but I appreciate that. Some of you were like, I'm out of here. And if this is your first time here, oh my, please forgive me. Please forgive me. But what an image, right? That that even the most poisonous of snakes, uh, we wouldn't worry about our children playing with them. Because we're going to have peace like there's never been. We're going to have peace like it was in the beginning, in the garden. Maybe even better than the garden. Because in the garden, there was the conflict between the serpent and the first humans, right? But in this, when this Messiah comes, when this peace comes, even that uh, original peace will be kind of surpassed. Everything will be better. So this is part of what we've been singing about. This is part of Advent. We, We lit the peace candle today. We sang those beautiful songs about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, that first one I just love, the one that said that, that the artist has become the paint, right? So you think of an artist and painting a canvas, but the, the artist that has painted our canvas has become part of the paint. Or the architect, the one who has planned all these things, has become part of the plan. That was one of the lines in that song. It's, it's like the poet has become one of the words, That's what Emmanuel means, God with us, that the God who has made everything and the God who is coming to make everything right and finished and complete and well is not doing it from a distance, but is coming and intimately being with us. Now, that coming, as as we picked up a bit in that passage from Isaiah, is, is not just kind of uh, sentimentality. It's not just um, God coming and kind of winking at all the evil that we participated in, yeah? But this coming is, is a true peace. It's not just a kind of absence of conflict. It's coming to kind of make peace, to give us true peace, true shalom. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage um, in, in Psalm 72 Uh, It says this, it says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown uh, mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In the days uh, may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. I'm going to jump down just a bit. It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may his glory fill the whole earth. May his glory fill the whole earth. See, Advent is about waiting, it's about expecting, Uh, it's about realizing that there's a promise that God has given us that he's going to make things right. And so far, we're not all the time experiencing that reality. So if, if times are hard, if you've struggled, if you are struggling, right, that is a common story of the people of Israel. I mean, God made a promise to Abraham. It was like 400 years later that that promise came true and his descendants became a nation. God spoke through the prophets after the exile Right, that a Messiah would be sent. And again, it was hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And so sometimes we pray, oh Lord, come. But a big part of our life is in waiting. But then if we look carefully at the promise, when the Lord comes, he comes in a way that cuts both ways. Like, I want God to come, and I want God to make things right. I want God to deal with evil, right? I want God to make right the unjust. Except that if God just came today and just eliminated all evil, there's a lot of us, even in this room, who could suffer a good bit because we participate in evil in different ways. We prefer ourselves over preferring others. We we are greedy, right? We've been shaped by the world and that expectation more than we realize. And so when we imagine that God's coming, he's coming and he's delivering me or maybe my family or my group and he's dealing with all those bad people out there. Except that sometimes those bad people are us. Like The guilt is in our court. The blood is on our hands. So the fact that God waits shows that God is merciful. The fact that God is slow to judge is also to our advantage, not just to our disadvantage. And so the coming of the Messiah, that which we wait for, that which we hope for, is good. But it's not necessarily safe, which reminds me of one of my favorite stories, which we're going to share just a bit with you, just now.
1: C.S. Lewis's celebrated children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells of the adventures of four children in the magical kingdom of Narnia. The story is fun, but it's also an allegory of Christ and salvation, with Christ represented by the lion, Aslan. When in Narnia, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who in this story begin to describe the mighty lion to them. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed, Mr. Beaver said. And now a very curious thing happened. See, none of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you or I do, but the moment that the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get back into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why, don't you know he's the king? He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or in my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this very moment, and he'll settle the White Queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone, too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, 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 no. Who put all to rights, as it says in the old rhyme in these parts? Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But we shall see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. "'I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him,' said Mr. Beaver. Is, "'Is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan, a man,' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.' "'Oh,' said Susan.' I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you.
0: Safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I want to quote a bit of that opening song again. There's this beautiful uh, refrain. It's at the very end of the chorus where it says the um, infinite infant God. The infinite infant. <laughs> That's so funny. If, I mean, an infant is anything but infinite. I mean, they start here and they end there. <laughs> you know, you've been around an infant and when they go to stretch, they do this. I mean, you can't, you can't really blame them, right? Because they're, they're used to really tight spaces, right? But they just, they're just so small, so innocent, so vulnerable, yeah? But this is an infinite, infant God. That's the one that comes. Our gospel text for today comes from uh, Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days... John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judah or Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah, when he spoke, said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John was, uh, wore clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him in all the region along the Jordan and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins but when he saw many pharisees and sadducees coming for baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit worthy of repentance do not presume to say to yourselves we have abraham as our ancestor For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The wintering fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the granary and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Man, that's a lot. And so I get this sense that all of us have participated in sin, that we have our lives that are are broken, that we experience a life where we know what to do, but we don't, and we know what not to do, and sometimes we do it. It It struck me in particular what he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Sometimes I think we're quick to kind of discount them, like, you know, boo, hiss, Pharisees, Sadducees. A couple of things to take note of is those two groups did not get along very well. To say the Pharisees and Sadducees would be like saying the Republicans and the Democrats, right? So if you were part of one of those two groups, you definitely felt like you were different from the other group, right? And in ways that you were right, they were wrong, and vice versa. They all felt that way. So the Sadducees and Pharisees didn't get along very well with each other, but John has kind of lumped them together and said, I don't know who warned you to come see me. But if you're going to live a life of repentance, we need you to live a life of repentance and not just use some words. So I I suspect that they, they too were baptized. I mean, the story doesn't say that exactly, but they've come to be baptized. I don't think John was denying them baptism. But he was kind of wanting them to confess and maybe more than confess to behave in a certain way. So John says that he baptized for forgiveness of sins but that Jesus was coming and that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, again, my Pentecostal upbringing, I was led to believe that to be baptized with spirit and fire was kind of of one and the same thing. That the fire of the Holy Spirit was this kind of power, this this, um, boldness that would come upon you that you could speak differently, whether it was tongues or prophesy, or whether it was just in your own language, but you would have boldness with which to share your faith. And I think if you're reading in Acts, there's, there's lots to be said about a certain reading of the text that way. However, I don't think that's what's happening here in Matthew. So to be baptized with spirit and to be baptized with fire, I think represents kind of life, mercy, grace, and judgment. I mean, the, the imagery that gets used there is that, is that Jesus has a winnowing fork in his hand. So imagine there's a big pile of, of wheat here on the stage. And Jesus has like a pitchfork, basically. And he's going to stick it into the wheat and he's going to toss it in the air. It's a bit of a violent act. You know, boom you know, throwing it up. And as he does it, the heavier part, the chaff, the, the stalk, right, is going to fall straight. But the wheat, the, the lighter part, is going to kind of float down. So we'll end up with two piles. A pile of, of just the wheat that's usable that will be made into bread. And then the kind of the stalk or the chaff that's then kind of useless and it gets burnt in the fire. I used to think, again, that... We were either one of those two groups. Either basically we were wheat and we would be, you know, okay, kind of saved, baptized in spirit, or we were chaff, we were the stalk, we were doomed for judgment. But I've come to believe that really we're kind of both, that we're We are are all of the wheat that's just been harvested. And there's there's parts of us that are being baptized in spirit and given life. Those parts that we're made for. Those parts that are are like our Heavenly Father. So that when we forgive someone, um, whether or not they've asked for forgiveness, right? But when we forgive them, we're behaving like the Heavenly Father. When, when we show mercy or grace when we love not just our neighbor but our enemy and maybe even for some of us it's when we love ourselves like maybe we have a hard time doing that but when we love we're like the Father and I don't think we're doing that kind of out of the sheer force of our own will I think that's a gift of God like God gives us faith. God gives us grace. God works those things in our lives, love and joy and patience and mercy and kindness and those sorts of things, yeah? But if we're honest with ourselves, we too are kind of uh, occupied and filled with all sorts of things that are somewhat ungodly. We're quick to judge. We see others that aren't like us. And we imagine them somehow kind of subpar uh, in need of correction, in need of judgment. And you can kind of fill in the blank with any kind of part of life. They live in the wrong place. They support the wrong politics. They support the wrong football team. (laughs) Right? But, But that is us too. And so I think when the Lion of Judah comes, he's going to baptize us in spirit and fire. And the baptism in the spirit is what makes us like God. And the baptism in fire is not like uh, utterly destructive, but it is destructive of those things that are unlike God. Yeah? So it'd be nice, I think, to kind of let some of those things go. I mean, wouldn't you rather not live a life where you are always concerned and kind of judging others? Wouldn't you like to live a life of peace? Peace with yourself? Peace with the earth? Peace with your friends and family, your coworkers? I mean, that's our, that's our hope. That's our goal. But we, we don't know how to get there. And maybe we can't get there on our own. But God comes. And shapes us, informs us, disciples us, baptizes us in his spirit so that we can be. A couple of things about God's judgment that I think you should keep in mind, that I'm convinced of. One is that God's judgment is restorative, like, God never judges just for the sake of judging. Like, it's, God's judgment is not reducible to punitive activity. Like, his goal is not just to punish you, just to punish you. Like, God's, I mean, God's judgment can feel like punishment, but it's, it's a refining fire more than it is a destructive fire. And it refines us. It's tough, it's hard, but we come out on the other end more like God. It's like putting like gold into the fire. And so the impurities get worked out. Like I definitely think that's the image. And as I was saying before, there is a way in which <clears throat> God's judgment is delayed. And sometimes we want it to come, but rarely do we want it to come for ourselves, right? We want it to come for our enemies. That sense of other, whoever they may be, but there's, there's one last uh, passage of scripture I want to share with you this morning. It comes from Romans. It's an epistle passage that often gets paired uh, with this passage from Isaiah and this passage from the Gospel. It starts in it's in chapter 15. It starts in verse four. It says this: For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. I want to say that again. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. In accordance with Christ Jesus. So that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a, a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that he might... In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, <clears throat> I, think, I think what's happening here is we're, we're hoping, we're expecting, right? Our expectation is high that God's going to come and he's going to give us peace. But the peace that he gives us, again, is, is not an absence of conflict as much as it is a resolution of conflict. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to say just that. He said, peace is not the absence of a negative force like war and those sorts of things. <clears throat> so it's not the, just the absence of that. It's the presence of a positive force like love and like reconciliation. So this is why I might explain it like this. When Christ comes, he's not just going to come and bring peace and quiet. He's going to come and bring peace and justice. So peace and quiet means like, it's like a, a father comes home from work and everybody in the house knows, man, dad's been having it hard at work lately, so let's just scatter, you know. Let's, let's, let's try and get the house clean before he gets home and maybe the dish is done. But when he's around, we want to kind of avoid, right? Because he's going to be fussy. You know, he's going to be aggressive. He's pent up all his anger, right, all day long. And he hasn't been able to kind of express it because, you know, you're not going to yell at your boss. But you can come home and kick your dog and yell at your kids. It's a form of like misplaced aggression, And so, we can be trained to behave in certain ways that mimic the impression of peace. But that's not peace. No one's at peace in that home. There's an absence of conflict because we have a dictator. But there's not actually the presence of peace. To have the presence of peace means that in our very hearts, in our souls, We're at peace. We're not retaliating. We're calm. We're quiet. We're not so easily moved by our circumstances or by our emotions. Because God has come and has resolved the peace.
1: We hope you were blessed by today's podcast.